In 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse number 1, Paul, speaking of the Lord, says, working together with him, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We're treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. These verses don't get a whole lot of attention in the modern era. When the prosperity gospel really began to take off in the 1980s, it was passages like these that your most intense prosperity gospel preachers could not preach because they don't support the prosperity gospel. What is the prosperity gospel? That if you just serve God the right way and you have faith for everything, that your skin will clear up, your hair will grow back, your wallet will get fatter, and your body will get slimmer. That's just the way the prosperity gospel works. And unfortunately, it's just not a biblical doctrine. Does God want to bless us? He wants to bless us. And sometimes those blessings are in material provisions. But I'm going to tell you something. God is not a glorified ATM machine, and the Bible is not a universal pin code to which gives you access to anything you want. Sometimes serving God is, in this world, brutal. Not because God's brutal, not because he's doing anything vindictive, but because we live in a world that opposes Jesus Christ, and because what they've done in opposing the master, Jesus promised that it would be done the same way unto us. So there's no getting around it. If we're going to finish well carrying out God's vision for the church and fulfilling even a personal vision that he gives us for our own lives, there's one thing that you're going to have to have from beginning to end, and that is dedication. So much of a, the discussion about vision is left up in the clouds and the mystical and the supernatural and the ethereal and all that stuff's exciting and fun. And I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that there are some encounters with God that defy logic and explanation. But I'm going to tell you something about vision. Vision from God is only fulfilled by dedicated people who refuse to quit. And to the degree that we are dedicated, it is highly likely to that same degree that if we will endure, we will see the fruit that comes in the vision that God gives us. So the test on your life and my life as we live for Jesus is not whether we are flashy, it's not whether we're flamboyant, it's not even really if we're fruitful, that will come, but the real test for me and you is will we be faithful 
And if a vision is going to come to pass in a local assembly, uh, a local assembly, the global church or individual's life, there has to be dedication. And so this passage is showing us what it looks like from the life of, in my opinion, the most dedicated Christian that's ever lived, and that man is the Apostle Paul. And so let's talk about this this evening, and I want you to keep it in the context. I'm just going to encourage you to do this. I'm going to let you get spiritually selfish tonight. What does that mean? I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about you. I don't want you to think about the heroes of the faith that have inspired you, nor do I want you to think of the zeros of the faith that have discouraged you. I want you to think about you and your life and ask yourself, will I remain dedicated no matter what? And so let's get into the word tonight. If dedication is going to be on display in my life and your life, there's this commitment that fuels it. It needs to proceed from one place. Commitment proceeds from identity. Your identity in Christ determines your activity for Christ. It is not your activity that assigns your identity. It is your identity that sources your activity. Well, what does all that mean? Well, let's take a look at the first couple of verses. If we're going to have our identity rooted in Jesus, I want to encourage us to begin to do something that is difficult sometimes. What is it? Resting in grace. You and I have to learn to rest in grace. In verse number one, Paul gives you a great balance here. Working together with the Lord. That's who he's referring to. He's referring back to chapter number five. Working together with the Lord then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Well, what in the world does that mean? He's talking to Christians. He's writing to the church at Corinth. Some of them are genuinely born again, but like any other local gathering of believers, some people in that gathering are not regenerate. They're not born again. They have a mental understanding of the Lord. They have uh, some form of commitment to his kingdom, but they have never really fully surrendered. They've never been regenerated. They've never been reborn. And what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about in 2 Corinthians is some of those people were coming after Paul. They were coming after his message. They were attacking him on all levels in order to discredit him. And what Paul is saying is, it's not about me, but as you attack me, you're attacking that message that God gave me, and you may be tampering with something. You may be approaching the kingdom, but not entering into the kingdom. And so he warns them, I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. I don't want you to give lip service to it. I don't want you to get close to it. I want you to truly be immersed in it. And then I want you to rest in the grace of God. Friends, th this has to become a reality in all of our lives. Um, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going I'm to tell, uh, tell on local churches for a minute. Local churches are notorious for counting heads, counting offerings, and then getting people to serve and 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 to serve. And then if they don't serve or if they don't give or if they don't attend, there's this massive uh, wave of guilt that begin, can be cast upon a person. And there's very little to do with grace. And so what happens is some genuinely born-again people, they feel like their acceptance before the Lord is rooted in their performance. So if I give more, I'm really acceptable to God. If I serve more, then God is really pleased with me. If I attend more, then, then they put it all on what they're doing, and there's very little connection with the grace of God. It is the grace of God that makes us acceptable to the Father. It is the grace of God that completes us in Christ Jesus. It is not our working for the Lord that changes our status before him. It is solely his grace. But the beauty of it is this. Paul didn't say, well, it's all grace and no work. What Paul is saying here is when you truly receive that grace, then you are one, as he describes in verse number one, you are one who will work with him. 
And so your identity determines your activity. One of my concerns as a pastor in a very uh, culturally Christian southern part of the United States is that a lot of people think, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. And so they're active, they're moving, they're in motion. There's a lot of activity, but there's not necessarily a lot of accomplishment in the sense of they're enjoying their service unto the Lord. And so Paul is teaching people all throughout 2 Corinthians, really in all of his writings, to rest in grace because your identity is secure in Jesus Christ. Well, there's more to it. Look in verse number two. We're not only to rest in grace, but remember gratitude. Here are the verses I didn't get to on Sunday morning. Uh, I didn't run out of zeal, but I did run out of time on Sunday morning, so I never got to talk about this. But he says in verse number two, he's quoting Isaiah 49, 8 there, and he says, in a favorable time, he's, this is God speaking, in a favorable time, I've listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And then he adds this, behold, now. That time is now. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When, when, when he's quoting Isaiah 49 there, he is saying, in essence, he's saying this, that God has initiated the realm of salvation, the age of grace, all of the benefits of being in a right relationship with him. God is saying that time is now. It was true 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote, and it's true here today, that we are living in the day of God's amazing, astounding, stunning grace and in in that grace, we receive inexpressible riches through our relationship with God in Christ Jesus. And so we have so many promises that are available to us, and it is all because of what Christ has done. It is not on us. We know that we're not saved by works, but we're not even sanctified through our works. We are called to be engaged in works, but I'm going to tell you something. Everything that is going on in your life as a Christian is sourced in the grace of God. God making his move towards you, and sometimes you move towards him, but let's be honest, sometimes when God moves towards us, we sidestep. We'd, like, we'd prefer him to go on by at this moment. We're either enjoying ourselves or we're either walking in some form of darkness or we're, not in a, we're in an apathetic state. And yet God, even when we are at our weakened state, continues to pursue us. And brothers, I don't know where you were. Sisters, I don't know where you were. But I can tell you the time, the place, and the very setting where I was when grace pounced upon me, a holy ambush of God, set me free from my sin and my shame and my darkness and my hurt and my fear and my rage and all of that nastiness that was in me. And one of the things that I have to fight for, and I, I imagine some of you do too, you have to remember to be grateful because you don't have everything going the way you want it in life. And you know what? You're probably made out of the same stuff I am. It is so easy to get sidetracked with all that is not properly aligned in your life. And if we are not careful, we'll forget to listen to the voice of God when he might say to us, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. I've heard you. In the day of salvation, I came to your rescue. I came to help you. And now that favorable time continues. I don't know when the last time you just had a uh, a sequestered time with the Lord, and just, just to say thank you. You know, when we were singing tonight, and I was listening to Olivia uh, just singing, and I just closed my eyes, especially in the, the song Hunger, and I'm just thinking, man, he's been good to us. It's like, it's been a long day. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I dealt with some conflict today. I'm not feeling overly spiritual, but all of a sudden, I just sense the presence of the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, but isn't Jesus good to you? Isn't the Lord good to you? Don't you know how much he loves you? And friends, if you will fight for gratitude, I'm going to tell you it'll be a completely different dynamic in your life. The reason why you should be grateful, by the way, is not because your favorite political candidate is soaring in the polls. 
It's not because you got a raise. If you got a raise, bravo, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not why you, you should walk around joyful and grateful. The number one reason, Jesus said this, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name, your actual name is written down in the actual book of life in heaven. Jesus said, there's something to rejoice about. And friends, we have got to keep that at the forefront of our thinking because that's the source of our identity. Our identity is Jesus. And we got to recognize the big picture, verse number three. Look at what he said. Paul said, we put no obstacle in another's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. This is actually pretty huge, and it'll make more sense in a moment. If you're not familiar with the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's having to defend his apostolic ministry. He's got all sorts of slander coming against him. He's got people undermining him. He's literally got people fighting him and just defaming him. And so he didn't want to write this letter. He had already had to deal with the church at Corinth on a couple of different occasions trying to straighten out some things. But on this one, he's literally saying, he's like, I didn't want to have to defend myself. No preacher likes to do that. But well, none of us really should like to do it. But when the accusation comes, sometimes we're to be like Jesus. We, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Sometimes you just have to take it. But at other times, when you see that the slander or the, or the accusation or the defaming is undermining the gospel, that's when Paul had to stand up and say, time out. You can slander me all you want, but when you come against me and you start defaming the message that Jesus gave me, that's when I'm going to have to write this letter, which is 2 Corinthians. And so what he's saying here is this. I've done my very best not to ever let the ministry that I've been given cause anybody else to stumble. Paul's whole life was revolving around the big picture that his life no longer belonged to him, that he was not his own, that he was bought with a price, and now he would live his life under the Lord who lived and died and rose for him. And so Paul was constantly aware that as an ambassador, that was the previous chapter, chapter number five, as an ambassador of Christ, wherever he went, he's reflecting Jesus to people. And so Paul would say this, Paul would say, I won't be controlled by what people think of me, but I do care what people think of me. Have you ever had that moment? Young, uh, I remember being a young 20-something-year-old preacher and, you know, completely abrasive and having no understanding whatsoever about how your demeanor can really undermine the gospel. And so I was all about just preaching the thunder and preaching it hard. And, you know, I didn't mind making you feel guilty about stuff you probably shouldn't have felt guilty about. It was a lot of just youthful zeal, but not married with wisdom. And so I remember saying at times in the pulpit as a young preacher, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. And there'd be a few people in the congregation will say, amen. But to be honest with you, that's not a spiritual thought. You should care what people think about you. You just shouldn't be controlled by what people think about you. Because as much as our life as Christians, as ambassadors for Christ, we are a reflection of Jesus. We're a reflection on one another. We're a reflection on the people of God all over the world. And so if people at work or people at school or people in the neighborhood know that we're a believer, but if we walk around with the attitude that we don't care what people think, it is highly likely that we're not reflecting well on the one who has saved us. And so what I want to do is I want to achieve that balance where I really care what you think about me, but if you're wrong about me, I'm not going to be controlled by that. I really want to have a clean conscience before the Lord, but if that gets me in trouble with man, then there's nothing I can do about it. I don't want to be controlled by people's opinion of me, but I do care about it. Why? Because I'm a reflection of Jesus. And that's the big picture. And Paul said this. 
He knew he had an assignment. He knew he had the truth. He knew he had to live under the Lord. And so he said, whatever I do, I don't want the ministry that God has given me to be defamed by my own actions. So what does that look like? What does this have to do with dedication? Everything that follows in this passage of Scripture is Paul unpacking the idea of what he went through and endured in order that Jesus would be glorified and that his ministry would be certified. In other words, that he would live in faithfulness and dedication in the calling that he had been given. Now, that sounds really spiritual, but wait until this list gets unpacked for us here in a moment, because I'm going to tell you this. I'm glad this isn't my list. I've had to deal with some things in the Christian life. You've had to deal with some things in the Christian life, but I thank God that in his wisdom, he's not tested me with this same stuff. And when I read it, I'm saying Paul has a level of dedication to Jesus Christ that I don't know if I've got. Now, I'd love to be able to tell you, I I got this, I could do this. But I'd be a fool because those that think they stand need to take heed lest they fall. And Paul didn't know he had this kind of faith until he went through it. It was not only tested through what he's, he's about to disclose, it was proven through it. So as I begin this list, I'm well aware that it's an extreme list of things that you and I haven't gone through for the most part. But I'm going to ask you, having gone through a lesser intensity of things that we've suffered, is our dedication the same? Have we remained resolute? Are we still committed to serving, following, and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ today as we were yesterday, last week, five years ago? Because we will be tested, brothers and sisters, and this is a generation. These are days where we have to make up our mind ahead of time that we will remain resolved to finish our race well. So let's look at it. Commitment, verses 4 and 5, requires endurance in adversity. Commitment requires endurance in adversity. First of all, we're going to see in verse 4 at the beginning, Paul was a proven servant of God. He said this in verse number four, after saying he didn't want any fault to be found with his ministry, he says in verse four, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, the whole thing was as Paul's testimony and his ministry was being discredited. And Paul had already said, I really don't want to have this conversation with you guys, but y'all backed me into a corner. You forced me to defend myself. And then now watch what he does. Once he makes the decision that he's going to go ahead and defend his ministry, his defense is impeccable. He says, I commend, we commend our ministry in every way. In other words, Paul said, I'll set everything I am and everything I do on the table, and I'll be able to validate everything I am and everything I do. Now, that is very powerful. That's a guy who says, I'm not afraid to be held accountable. I'm not afraid to be looked at. I'm not afraid to be inspected in my ministry. But what is the chief thing that made Paul so bold and confident in a holy way that made him able to say, you can look at my life, you can look at my ministry, and I'm going to tell you, you'll come away with the conclusion that I'm God's man. I'm the person who I'm supposed to be. Let me tell you what it rests in. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to hear me on this one. I know this isn't rah-rah stuff, but this can help us. The number one thing that will determine our dedication and our faithfulness and ultimately our reward before the Lord, two words, impeccable character. Impeccable character. It's already been mentioned by uh, Brother Mick tonight. It's who you are when nobody's looking Character is an issue of being who you truly are before the Lord. 
And Paul was a man, who, by the way, impeccable character doesn't mean perfect all the time. It simply means this. You've got the heart of David who had a heart after God, and you've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you as he is sanctifying you and bringing you into greater and greater Christ-likeness. There's no duplicity. There's no feigning. There's no um, a sense of hypocrisy about you. But you are who you say you are to be. And that is the source of every single um, validated ministry. And if we don't have that, just because you're not a preacher or a pastor or an elder or a missionary or what have you, doesn't mean you're not a minister. We are all diakonos. We are, and that's literally the word that Paul uses here. It's the word from which we get our word deacon. It just means a servant. And we are all ministers. And Paul says this, you can look at me, look at my life, look at the work I I do in this world, and I'm going to tell you, it will be commended in every way. We'll go further into it. Here's where we get more specific. Paul was not only a proven servant of God, he was a powerful soldier for God. Verse number four at the end, this is how Paul says his ministry is commended. These words, by great endurance, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities. This phrase, by great endurance in the ESV, most of what he says in the following verses describes what he had to endure. And the endurance that is being described here is not simply kind of gritting your teeth and clenching your jaw and holding your fist tight, but it really describes more of a triumphant patience. I I was at the uh, tag office the other day, and uh, I didn't feel very triumphant for those three hours. I'm just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there, and I'm thinking, don't you other people have something you should be doing today? Why am I the 131st person in line? I got my little ticket there, and I'm thinking, well, I guess I'll endure. And I did. I sat there and sat there and sat there. Eventually, they called my name. I got my business taken care of, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about an abiding in Jesus with a triumphant expectation, and it actually not only fuels your actions, it defines your attitude. And so it's more than just kind of gritting your teeth, but look at what he says. He's not talking about hanging out at the DMV for three hours. Look at what Paul does with this biographical statement. This is what Paul had to do in order to complete his assignment from Jesus. What is it? He talks about afflictions, hardships, and calamities. Now, let's don't just let those be words that hang there. What does this mean? And I'm not going to give you a big Greek lesson. I don't don't want to bore you any further, but the, the word affliction describes all manners of suffering, emotional, mental, physical. Paul said earlier in this uh, book, he said there was a point in his ministry where he despaired even of living, that he's brought to the end of himself over and over again. We find Paul at different times being physically tortured for his faith and, and beaten. We see him at the point outside of Lystra where they stoned him, and many people think that he literally died and was taken to the third heaven and sent back based on his testimony. Now, I, I don't know about all of that, but I do know one thing. When you get smashed with rocks, whether you die or not, it's physical affliction. And Paul talks also about these hardships. And that's simply a Greek word that describes the implication is impossible to avoid difficulty. It just means the intense level of periodic pain and difficulty in your life. All of you have experienced it. There's not a person in this room, I don't think, that has been immune from some serious, unavoidable circumstances and pain in life. Sometimes it's relational. Sometimes it's a physical affliction. Sometimes it's a a spiritual attack. But we've all gone through either circumstances or relationships that have just ripped us apart. And Paul went through that. 
Paul lost all of his affiliation with his Jewish countrymen when he was born again. And then they attacked him, and then the Gentiles attacked him. And everywhere that Paul went, as he's going to testify, he had people that adored him, and he had people that wanted to kill him. What was Paul's response? Endure. Expecting triumphant outcome, which, of course, he experienced the moment he ends up giving his life for Jesus. He enters into the fullness of inheritance. Why? Because he endured. He persevered. He never quit. He never gave in to self-absorption, and he always kept the context before him of the king and his kingdom, and he continued to persevere. He was also uh, speaking here of these calamities. I love this word. This is a Greek word that indicates the closing in of the walls, to be stuffed in a narrow place and to be trapped. You may not know this, but the Hebrew word yashah is a word from which uh, the name Yeshua is derived, and the word salvation, it's most accurate, uh, often translated into English, but it's literally, yashaw is a word that means to take from a narrow space and put in a wide open space. So that salvation is, is pictured as you going from being trapped and confined and suffocating and being brought into a place where you're liberated and free and can breathe. Well, Paul says here that these calamities are like a free person being stuffed into a circumstance from which she can't get free. Uh, being placed in something that is suffocating, you can't move and you can't get out. Now, some of y'all may be living that right now. It may not be as intense as what Paul has experienced, but some of you might be able to raise your hand and say, Jeff, right now, man, I'm in a situation I can't get out of it. It's not that I'm not praying, I'm not trying. It's just that th- there is no relief right now. There's no easy out. If I budge this way, uh, something else sticks in my side. If I try to move this way, I got another problem finally. Jeff, I'm trapped. Well, let me just say, you're in good company because Paul knew exactly what you're talking about. And he endured. And he persevered. And he pressed in. And he didn't quit. And he didn't lose his vision of the king or the king's kingdom. He kept on pressing forward as a powerful soldier of God. Go into verse 5 with me. It doesn't get easier. Paul was a persistent sufferer for God. I I don't have a grid for this. Verse number five, he talks about the beatings he went through, the imprisonments he went through, the riots that kind of surrounded him at times. I mean, so much for this idea that if you're just walking in the will of the Lord, it's going to be cool breezes and warm sunshine. What a joke. It's, It's just completely foreign to Scripture. Wherever Paul went, listen, heaven broke loose and so did hell. It it was just incredible. Wherever he was as an ambassador for Christ, you had all of heaven for him. And because of that, all of hell fought against him. And so literally the man was pummeled and beaten and just absolutely physically persecuted. His freedom was taken away. This was the primary figure, figurative representative of the Lord of his day. And look at what he says he has to went through, uh, that he had to go through. They're self-explanatory. I don't need to break down the Greek word of being beaten or imprisoned or being surrounded by riots. It was at times his life was just absolutely chaotic. Further into verse number five, he was prepared to sacrifice for God. This was the daily stuff. He said, yeah, I, I, I labored for the Lord. I had sleepless nights for the Lord. He had to go hungry at times because of his commitment in the kingdom. You got to remember, there wasn't a QT on every corner. There wasn't a Marriott that you could just get a bed in. And even if there was, uh, listen, the, the apostle at times didn't have money. 
Sometimes he knew how to abound. Sometimes he knew how to go without. But the point is, is he did all of this willingly. I love the fact that he said, ministry is hard work. If, if you show me an individual who doesn't carry a little bit of agony with himself or herself in their ministry, it tells me they're not doing it quite right. Because brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. The, the, Jesus said this, you can't be my disciple until you pick up that cross of yours and carry it. And that's what Jesus said. That's not a fringe doctrine. Jesus said that. He said, you can't follow me. You can't be my disciple unless you're willing to pick up a cross and, and follow me. And the cross doesn't come with a cushion for your shoulder. It, it's hard. It's painful. It's a signal of at times being debased. And what it means is this, is it's, it's a, it's a gut-wrenching life at times. Now listen, it doesn't mean you can't have vacations. It doesn't mean you can't at times in our culture enjoy, enjoy a nice house. But it does mean this, we're never entitled to that stuff. And because we've lived with it, here comes my social commentary for America. American Christians, hear me. We have lived in such affluence. We have been blessed to an immeasurable degree like no other generation of Christians that have ever, ever lived on planet Earth. None have ever been as affluent as the 20th and 21st century Western American Christians. None. And we have come to the place, generation after generation of us as believers have lived in this culture for so long, we now feel entitled to all of these things. And so when there is this presumed call for us to sacrifice, to give, to sell all that we own at times, God may call some of you to sell everything you own and and enter into a lifestyle far different than what you've lived. He has the right to do that as Lord, but we hear that and we're thinking, no way. Tell that to Paul. Uh, Paul was a tent maker. Paul didn't have a house at the beach. Paul said, I had to have sleepless nights. Why would he do that? Sometimes it's because they stayed up all night praying. Other times it's because he didn't have a, you know, a motorcycle to ride around on. He had to walk to get wherever he was going. And if he didn't have to walk, he had to go in a boat, a ship somewhere. And so it's a life of a, a person that pitches a tent one night, sleeps in it, packs up the tent, and moves on to the next place. Now, I'm just going to ask you this. This is not to make anybody feel guilty because I can't tell you that this is what God wants you to do, but I am going to ask you this. Have you presumed that you're entitled to more than that? How would you respond if the Lord continues to allow some of the the pressures to come in? Think about this. If if we want the oil, and and in in the word of God, oil typifies very often the Holy Spirit. It's often typifying power, too, or separation unto service. And we want that, man. Give me the power. Give me the oil of the Holy Spirit. Give me an anointing, God. I want all of that. Do you know how they get the oil out of the olives? In the press, through crushing. And what we, listen, y'all don't get mad at me. I'm just telling it like it is. I may not even be preaching to you, but I'm preaching to all of us. It's this, we want the oil, but we don't want to go through the press. We want the anointing, but we don't want the squeeze that comes before the anointing. Am I all by myself here tonight? Is anybody getting this? Brothers and sisters, listen, you got to figure out how much you want it. You can live your life. You can be status quo. You can be average. But if you want an anointing on your life that glorifies Jesus and makes you effective to not only serve but to endure and remain dedicated, then you're going to have to get squeezed. And and, and here's the thing. You actually can get used to it. And just when you think you've gotten used to it, you say, man, I I know how to do this now. I know how to live with a little pressure. I know how to to be squeezed. I know how God works. He presses and the oil comes out. and And you know what he starts doing? He squeezes you a little more. 
He turns the intensity of the press up a little bit more. Why? Not because he's big, mean God, but because there's more oil he wants to bring out of you. Why? Because more oil indicates a greater effect of anointing for service and kingdom advancement. So Paul was willing to sacrifice for God, going hungry through fasting, going hungry sometimes because he couldn't get food. But sometimes, I just want to tell you, sometimes your life will feel like exhausting, unending work. It will. You're not imagining things. But I just want to say, for generations of Christians all over the world, and even to this day in other parts of the world, They feel entitled to nothing less than serving tirelessly for the Lord Jesus Christ. And their motives are right. They're doing it out of love and out of gratitude and out of compassion for the people that need Christ. And they don't feel like, you know, their goal in life is the American dream to get a nice house, a nice car, uh, a great retirement package, and then, you know, sip margaritas by, or sip Kool-Aid, if that's your preference, at at the beach for age 65 to 85. That's just foreign to New Testament Christianity. So, so what do we do? Who are we going to be like? Are, are we going to be like the American 20th, 21st century Christian that dabbles in Jesus but enjoys everything else? Are we going to be the people that enjoy Jesus and, and occasionally dabble in things that are lawful, lawful pleasures from the Lord? That's a decision we all have to make. So let's go further. Um, go down into verse number six and seven. Commitment is empowered by spiritual endowments. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about dedication and commitment. It proceeds from identity. Commitment requires endurance and adversity. And here we see that commitment is empowered by spiritual endowments. I love this. This is where Paul says, tells us how he was able to endure all this stuff we just talked about. Look what he says. He indicates that some of it came through purity. It's an invisible personal endowment. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Um, When there's a list in your Bible, Paul occasionally would give lists of things. The end of 1 Thessalonians 5, he gives a list of all these things that we need to do as the body of Christ. And occasionally he'll give you a list like in Galatians 5, here's the works of the flesh. There's a list and here's the fruit of the spirit. Here's another list. Paul will give you a list of sins sometimes. And he says, this is a sin, this is a sin, this is a sin. Anytime I see a list like that in my Bible, I just want to stop and I want to look at the list because it's God condensing really important information right into one or two verses. And so you don't have to search everywhere. So when I see a list like this, I want to say, okay, learning opportunity, growth opportunity. Paul's talking about how he's enduring all these things that I'm afraid I don't know if I could endure or not. And now in verse 6, he's saying, here's how some of that came to pass. Through a pure lifestyle, a lifestyle consecrated, not just spiritually speaking, but practically speaking, a lifestyle of purity. It means Paul didn't try to manage sin. He fled from sin. Paul didn't try to, you know, just kind of, well, uh, just enough repentance and, and avoiding sin to make me effective for tomorrow's tent meeting or whatever. Paul's like, no, I, I want to be pure. I want this vessel to be pure. I want this temple of God to be pure. I want this tabernacle of the Holy Spirit to be in, in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ who bought me, body, soul, and spirit. I want to live a pure life under the Lord. Um, it's it's kind of out of vogue, guys. I just want to say this. Um, Living a pure life, whether it's sexually pure, uh, pure integrity, uh, pure with your speech, that might be not only for the guys, but the women too. Just you, James said, hey, why are you cursing people with the same mouth you're blessing God with on Sunday? 
Why are you gossiping and slandering with that mouth when that's the same tongue you use to sing how great thou art on Sunday? And so that, that's a purity issue. And Paul said, yeah, part of the reason why I'm able to endure is attributed to the fact that I'm living a pure life before the Lord. Um, if, if you're struggling with purity, you're, you're likely struggling with a lot of other things in the spiritual life. A confidence in your prayer life. Listen, if you've got perpetually dirty hands, it's hard to go before the Lord in confidence that your prayer will be answered. The psalmist said that. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so I get that. I understand that. And Paul said, yeah, you can actually overcome that by purity, by knowledge. What is that? That's objective truth. It's the truth of the kingdom, the truth, the teachings of Jesus, the teaching of the Hebrew Bible that Paul had so much memorized. And then Paul's writing truth here, this knowledge, revelatory knowledge, prophetic knowledge, apostolic knowledge that came through Paul. Paul said, yeah, I'm able to endure what I see because of he whom I know. And so it was knowing being renewed in the spirit of your mind and having a mind that is soaked with the truth and the gospel. Paul said patience. By the way, patience and kindness in this list are the two relational words. Those have to deal with his relationships with people. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to tell you something. It's not even spiritual. But if we don't get it, we won't endure. You're just going to have to be really patient with some people in the body of Christ. I mean, you're not going to like everybody in the body of Christ. You won't even like everybody in your home church. There's going to be some people that you will just have to learn to be patient with. Maybe they're obnoxious and they don't know it. Maybe they're whiny and they don't know it. Maybe they're negative and they do know it, but they're not going to change. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they carry themselves a little too loud. Maybe they bow up a little too proud. I don't know, but there's going to be some people in the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ you're just going to have to be patient with. You say, well, Jeff, I, I just don't know if I can do that. Well, you have to. <laughs> That's just part of the deal. You say, well, how do I do that? This is the way it works for me. Do you know how patient Jesus is with this guy? That's what sets me free. And I, I, I don't have anybody in mind, but I, I have to be patient with a few people in my life. And the only motivation I have is I know how patient Jesus is with me. So what I need from him, others need from me. And so you just learn to be patient. By the way, it also says be kind. You know what a rare virtue that is in our generation? How many truly kind people do you know? Like one and a half? I mean, you're just not that many kind people out there. Well, be one. Let let their tribe increase. And Paul said one of the things that enabled him to endure was that he actually lived in kindness. Uh, Think about the Philippian jailer. I mean, think about that. When, when Paul, this man that had, had authorized the beating of Paul and Silas in the jail at Philippi, tortured them basically, chained them to a wall, God shook the prison because he was thundering in applause at Paul and Silas's harmonizing praise songs, and God shook the prison, set Paul and the prisoners free, and Paul's first response was to look out for the welfare of the jailer because the jailer was going to kill himself because all the prisoners were going free, and Paul, in kindness said, none of you prisoners go anywhere. And he says to the jailer, we're all here. None of us fled. What is that? That's something I don't have. What would you have done? I've been like, sorry, Jack, you you picked the wrong job. You're going to reap what you sow. We are out of here. Especially when it looks like God's the one who set you free. But look at Paul. He, He showed him kindness. By the way, what's the back end of that story? What happened to the jailer and his family? They all got converted. 
The same guy that authorized the beating of Paul, maybe, maybe even did the beating, ends up cleaning Paul's wounds. Why? Because Paul endured the affliction and the hardship, the beatings, and he responded not in vindictiveness to his enemy, but in kindness. Friends, I'm going to tell you that I think it was my grandmother, Mississippi Southern woman, she used to tell me, Jeff, honey will get you a lot more than vinegar. And Paul would probably say amen to that. So look down at verse number seven. Oh, I skipped it. <laughs> I go back to verse six. This is the problem with expositional preaching. Every word is a sermon. So you rarely get done with everything, but let me just, before leaving verse number six, the endowment of the Holy Spirit. I can't leave the most important one out. Paul says this, in the context of enduring, Paul said, some of it's on me. I'm gonna live a pure life. I'm gonna be kind. I'm going to soak in knowledge. I'm going to be patient. <laughs> but it's almost, it feels like a toss in right in the middle of the verse. He, he, he just says, oh yeah, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you want him to, to, will take you much farther than you think you can go. He will tell you to stay longer than you think you can stay. He will actually empower you to endure what you never thought you were going to endure, but he usually doesn't do it until you are committed in your will to let him. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit is God, and therefore he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, but he chooses more often than not to work at the level of your cooperation. And so Paul had learned to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He had learned to walk in the Holy Spirit. He had learned not to quench the Holy Spirit. He taught never to grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul received revelation through the Holy Spirit. Paul was uh, empowered with the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew about the pneumaticos, the other gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul, outside of Jesus Christ, I, Paul actually wrote more doctrine about the Holy Spirit than Jesus preached doctrine. But Jesus and Paul were the ones that give us the most information on the Holy Spirit. And so I want my views of the Holy Spirit to be shaped by those two, what Jesus preached and what Paul wrote. And brothers and sisters, I don't care what the charismatics think about the Holy Spirit. I don't care what the Baptists think about the Holy Spirit. I want to know what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit because I'm going to operate according to the Scriptures. And I can tell you one thing. I don't know everything there is to be known about the Holy Spirit. I know one thing. I need him. I need him. I need him for being a husband, for being a dad, for being a son of God, for being a brother to you, for being a pastor, for being a preacher. Holy Spirit, I need you. I want more of you. I had a person get on to me last year because I was talking about, man, you need more of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jeff, doesn't the Bible say that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation? Yeah, but the same Bible says you need to be filled with him. So if you need to be filled with him, that means more. It says be being filled I don't know why I'm preaching this. I just wanted to say that. But listen, the point being is this. Paul said the reason why, one of the reasons he was able to endure was because of the presence and the work and the dependence and the cooperation of the Holy Spirit. And if we keep, if we keep denying the person of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our churches, no wonder people don't endure. People won't endure in the power of the flesh because your flesh will fail you. You remember what Jesus said, the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so we must have constant filling of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you have to walk around praying in tongues all the time and things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. It's deeper than that. It's, it's more than that. It might include that, but it is so much more than that. It is a relationship with God the Spirit. And Paul attributed that relationship to uh, part of the reason he endured. 
So I'm going to finish verse number seven, and um, I'm going to leave verses eight through 10 for another time, maybe even next Wednesday. But um, not only these invisible personal endowments of verse six, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, love, but verse number seven, by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Mm, I love that kind of talk. When you start talking about battle motifs in scripture, you know, I'm fine. I, I like the bridegroom. I like all the love. I, I like that. I like the Song of Solomon, and that's great, man. That's, that's good. It's good scripture. But I'm going to tell you, what really cranks my truck is when the, the, the Christian life is typified with a guy with a sword in his hand, you know, and some boots, and he's about to stomp the enemy. That's what really, really gets me going. It's really warm and fuzzy, right? But that's just really how I picture the Christian life. Just going after it, man. It's a war. And so look at what Paul says, and, and it's very, it, it's, it's attached to what we find in the armor of God where Paul writes the church at Ephesus. But look at the two things. I'm going to highlight this because you, you may even want to underline this in your Bible or highlight it on your tablet, however you're reading the word tonight, because this is a backbone of who Newbridge is. You need to hear this. By truthful speech and the power of God, just stop there. You have in that phrase two things, a reference to word and spirit, word and spirit, truthful speech. Paul's not just talking about refraining from telling lies. He's talking about speaking the truth in love. He's talking about the truth as it regards the kingdom, as it regards Jesus Christ himself. We would make that application to our Bibles, the truth of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. We are and will continue to be a people of the word. That is the history of both of the churches that have come together to form Newbridge. Cornerstone has majored on the word. Meadow has majored on the word. As a matter of fact, Meadow in our history has majored so much on the word that I think in many seasons, we have forgotten the second part of what Paul references here. What is it? The power of God. Now, we understand that the word is alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's dividing in the middle of soul and spirit. The word of God is powerful. We understand that, but that's not what Paul is saying. Yes, we know the word is powerful, but Paul references so often in his writings the dual dynamic of word and spirit. People have asked us, Jeff, why the name Newbridge? Well, let me give you a quick parenthetical, and I've got about three minutes and I'm done. We thought, okay, Dustin and I are working through this. We're receiving all of this just great guidance from the Lord. But eventually we sat down one day and said, what are we going to call this new work? And we had a couple of ideas and we just, we prayed for days. Over. And finally, we just sat down and thought, what are we doing here? What are we leading these two church families to do? And what's the future going to look like? What is God calling us to do? And really, we kept coming back to this reality that people in our generation, especially in the South, are being forced to pick a church that is either a word church or a Holy Spirit church. Most Holy Spirit churches, they might open and read a Bible verse, but then they put it away and then they just have their time and jubilee in the Holy Spirit. And most word churches, they're going to go verse by verse, Greek, Hebrew, verb tenses, all of that, expositional preaching, three-hour sermons, and, and then they're going to fold it up and they say, may God bless his word, and they walk out. And we thought, do we really have to pick between our Bible and the Holy Spirit? Do I have to pick between the powerful, authoritative, objective word of God 
or the dynamic, miraculous, supernatural, mind-blowing work of the Holy Spirit? Do I really have to pick? Dustin and Cornerstone didn't want to pick. Jeff and most of Meadow didn't want to pick. And so there came the time where we realized God's bridging these two things together. We didn't see any other church that was actively pursuing this. We realized this is a new bridge, new bridge, new bridge, new bridge. And then bridging people groups and then serving as a bridge in our generation, in our community, where people could walk over and not have to leave one on one side or the other on the other side. But listen, bring your Bible and your allegiance to it, but come expecting the power of God and the person of the Holy Spirit when we gather together and when we leave here to impact our world for Christ. Say, Jeff, you made all of that out of that one verse. I'm going to give you four more. I'm not going to preach them. I'm just going to read them. Then I'm going to pray and you're free to go. So here we go. Listen to what Paul said of the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came not to you only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I got the word, but you know that when I was with you, it wasn't just my apostolic teaching. It wasn't just the teaching of the scripture. It was also the power of the Holy Spirit. You got a bridge there. Romans 15, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message, word, and by the way I worked among them, the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 19. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. And watch this, watch this, Christian friends. Paul says, in this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ. Romans 15, 18, and 19 marries, bridges, the word and the spirit, and Paul says, only in this have I fully presented the good news. The implication is this, one without the other is not the fullness of what God wants to be presented concerning the kingdom. You can have your Bible, but if you don't have a dependence and the inner working of the whole, I said I wasn't going to preach these, but I'm going to, the inner working of the Holy Spirit Your Bible becomes a stone tablet of law. It it massages your mind. It might even occasionally please your, your, your soul, but it doesn't empower you apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, it is in these two things that I fully presented uh, the good news of Christ. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul said this, my speech and my preaching, that's word, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you get it again? Paul said, yes, I preached. Paul would open up the Hebrew scriptures in ways that most of his peers could not do, but he'd do it in the context of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it wasn't enough just to preach. Paul said, the thing that convinced some people was not only the sermons, but the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. I'm just going to ask you, can you find anywhere in the scripture where it is clearly taught that one continues, but the other one stops, that the word continues, but the expectation and the need for the power of the Holy Spirit stops? It's not in the Bible. It's in man's doctrine. And that doctrine is called cessationism, and it's an unbiblical doctrine. And so we need both. And then the last one, and I am done with an extra two minutes that I robbed you of, but here we go. 1 Corinthians 4, 20 through 21. It's my favorite of all of them. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God is not in word only, 
but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit power. Friends, that is what defines the New Testament church. Apostolic doctrine, the truth of the New Testament, God's word, not, not any denomination's view of God's word, but God's word backed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we continue on, as New Bridge Church, we should anticipate a fierce loyalty to the scriptures. And some days that's going to please you, and some days it may hem you in a little bit and convict you, but we will remain loyal as a body of believers. And the second thing is this, we want, need, and expect the power of the Holy Spirit to do in this congregation what he has never been asked to do before. What is that going to look like? I don't know, but it's going to be good. Amen?